You know, conflict is something that we all battle with on a regular basis. In fact, years ago, I was reading a humorous story about a couple that were in a heated discussion about wanting to purchase a new vehicle. The husband wanted a new truck, and the wife wanted a sports car that would go very, very fast. And so they kept arguing about this, and finally it came to a head, and the wife said to the husband, look, my birthday's coming up, and I want you to buy me for my birthday a sports car that will go from zero to 180 in four seconds or less. And if you don't, we're gonna continue to have acrimony in the marriage. And so the day of her birthday came, and she went out in the driveway, and lo and behold, there was no car. And so angry and frustrated, she went in to look for her husband, and she couldn't find her husband anywhere. So she decided to decompress and take a hot bubble bath to alleviate her anger and frustration. And when she walked in the bathroom, she noticed a note on the gift that her husband had gotten her. And here's what the note said. My dearest wife, you wanted a gift that went from zero to 180 in four seconds, and so I decided to buy you this scale. Happy birthday. That didn't go over too well, did it? You see, conflict is something that we all battle with. It's part of the human race. And remember, it began back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. When God cursed Adam, he cursed Eve, he cursed the serpent. Here's what he said to Eve in the garden. He said, your desire will be for your husband. Now, he wasn't talking there about sexual desire. He was talking about the woman trying to take control of the man. And then God says this, but he will rule over you. In other words, he's going to try to dominate you. And so, right there in the garden were planted the seeds of conflict, and you have the battle of the sexes, right there in Genesis chapter 3. And we know conflict is global, it's universal, it's been around since the beginning of mankind. I read recently some statistics in terms of wars that have taken place globally, and here is what the statistics said. There have been 14,000 553, Noah, slide, wars from 36 B.C. to date. Since 1945, there have been over 70 wars and more than 200 significant outbreaks of violence. From 1958, over 100 nations have been involved in one way or another in armed conflict of some kind. In the over 3,100 years of recorded world history, the world has only been at peace 8% of the time, or a total of 286 years, and 8,000 treaties have been made and broken. There are more than 40 active conflicts right now, end quote. So you see where globally wars have taken place, and we see it not only on a global level, we also see it on a national level. Our country has experienced a civil war that killed a lot of people, but even more importantly, we see it happen on a personal level. We see it in our families, with our children, our spouses. We see it with our coworkers. Even in the church, we see a lot of discord. Now, not all conflict is bad, even though it's inevitable, and even though some conflict will never be resolved in this life, not all conflict is necessarily bad. God uses conflict. What conflict does is it defines what you believe. It helps to decipher truth from error, right from wrong. Conflict helps produce the fruit of the Spirit in you because when you are with somebody, you live with somebody, you work with somebody, what happens is when you have differences, you have opportunity to exercise the fruit of the Spirit or to walk in the flesh. 
And you know what I've discovered conflict does? It also produces a greater and deeper amount of intimacy in relationships. I have a friend of mine, he was married for 15, 20 years. He said, Mike, we never argued once in our marriage. And he said, my wife ended up leaving me. She said she didn't know if she loved me anymore, and she decided to go out and basically try to find herself. And he said that was the problem. He said we never had honest and frank discussions. And so conflict can actually produce intimacy within a relationship. And so it's not all bad, but we also know that conflict is destructive, especially in the church. And we see the church today riddled with all kinds of conflict that has created discord and actually has hurt the unity of the church. Jesus in John chapter 17, when he prayed his high priestly prayer, he prayed that the church would be one. Why? Because he knew that if the church was divided to the point where we couldn't get along with each other at all, it would actually hurt and impede the gospel. Now, the Bible calls us to resolve our conflicts and to live in unity. Listen to these verses real quickly, and I'm only giving you a sampling here. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Notice as long as it depends on you. We may try to reconcile, we may try to resolve our conflicts with others, but some people do not want to reconcile, and there's nothing you could do at that point. You've done what you're called to do. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious. And then in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, if you're going to the temple and you're going to offer up your sacrifice, if you know someone has a problem with you, Jesus said, resolve that issue before you offer up the sacrifice. Today, we would say this, if you're having issues with someone and you don't want to resolve that issue, what Jesus is saying there is God can't receive your worship. You could still come to church, but if you have bitterness and anger and acrimony in your heart, God cannot receive your worship. And so the Bible is replete with verses that teach us that God wants us to resolve conflict and achieve unity. Now, God knows inevitably that we're not always going to be able to resolve it. And so how do we resolve conflict? Well, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, as you know, we've been going through the book of Philippians, and we want to look this morning at verses 1 through 5, and we want to look at the topic of resolving conflict. Now, remember, this is Paul's prison letter. In his first Roman imprisonment, Paul wrote four prison letters. He wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and now he writes Philippians. And why did he write Philippians? Well, it's an epistle of joy because he uses the word joy, I think, 13 to 16 times. He uses the noun form joy. He also uses the verb form rejoice. And so throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul is calling us to rejoice. And it's no different when it comes to conflict. If you want to have joy in your life, one of the things that you got to be intentional about is resolving conflict, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in the church, whether it's with a coworker, because nothing will steal your joy more than unresolved acrimony in your life. Now, the Philippians were dealing with this issue of conflict. We don't know the exact nature of it. It was probably personality conflicts. But just to show you this, look at Philippians chapter 1 up on the screen. You'll see where the Philippians were dealing with conflict. Paul says, whatever happens, in other words, he was in jail, whether I live or die, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know, and look what he says here, 
that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, look, if I don't get out of this sentence that I'm in and I die, he says, I want to know that you are striving together as a church as one for the gospel. Why would he have to say that? Because they were battling discord. Then in Philippians chapter 2, he has to address a problem. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. What was going on there? They were arguing, they were complaining, they were murmuring, they were grumbling. He says, look guys, it's going to hurt your testimony, verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then finally in Philippians 4, there were two cantankerous women that were not getting along with one another. He says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And then he has to ask a third party to help them. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. And so just from these three verses, we see that the Philippian church was dealing with conflict, murmuring, complaining. And you know what's great about the scripture? It's still relevant for today because you know what? Human nature is human nature. We still battle this today, whether in our family, whether in the local church, whether on our jobs, even in politics today, we see a lot of anger going on and mudslinging verbally. So here's the question. How do we resolve conflict and achieve unity? Now, what Paul is going to do in the first five verses is he's going to give us some motivations and some principles on how we can resolve conflict. Now, let me say at the outset, this is not exhaustive. This is not intended to be a manual on how to solve conflict. Because you and I know sometimes it's a very deep process. And you got to look at the totality of Scripture if you want to find out what are the principles to resolve conflict. But I believe Paul here is going to share with us several motivations and principles to help us deal with conflict in our marriage, with our children, and even in the local church level, even on a national level to some degree, although people that are non-believers typically don't follow these principles. And so here's what I want to ask you this morning. Are you embroiled in some type of conflict this morning? Do you have an issue with somebody that needs to be resolved? God wants you to work on those issues. You know, some personalities, what they do is they stuff. They have issues, they have hurts, they have anger. Some people are very hypercritical and they want to find all the negativity in everybody and in the church, and what they do is they hop from one church to another. You see, there's a problem there. You got to deal with that critical spirit. Doesn't mean we don't have differences. So what are the principles? Let me share them with you this morning. The first principle, if we're going to resolve conflict, is we must remember God's blessings and resources. We must remember God's blessing and resources. Notice, if you will, verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, therefore. Now, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, it's on the basis of what he said in chapter 1, verse 27, the Philippians were battling persecution. They were facing opposition because of the gospel. And he says, because you're facing opposition, let me tell you what God, Christ, and the Spirit have done for you. Let me share with you the blessings that the Trinity has given you. He says, therefore, and here is what the Greek says, not if, like maybe, maybe not. The Greek says this, since. It's an assumed fact. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and since you receive affection and compassion, he says, make my joy complete by being one. 
In other words, what he's doing is he's reminding the Philippians of their spiritual blessings and their spiritual resources. Because they were going through persecution, he says, let me show you what the Trinity does for you. And if you notice the screen here, you'll see the list of things that the Trinity does. God encourages us, he consoles us, he gives us fellowship, and he gives us affection and compassion. And listen, when you and I are going through a difficult time, we're being broken in our life, or maybe other people have caused us pain, one of the things that we want more than anything if we're walking with God is we want to know that God is in control. We, don't, we want to know that God hasn't left us or forsaken us. That's why it's so critical that we hear from God during those times, because when the heavens are brass and we say, God, where are you in the midst of my difficulty and my trouble? You know what God does? And I could testify to this, and so can a lot of you here. As you walk with God, you know what God does? He gives you a personal word. He lifts your spirit. God encourages you. God comforts you in the midst of your difficulty and pain. Sometimes he uses the Bible. Have you ever read a verse in the Bible where God had your zip code and he spoke to you very clearly? Or he uses another person. Or it's a change of circumstances. Years ago, I went to a conference. It was at Calvary Chapel in central Jersey. And Norm Geisler was the speaker there. Norm Geisler is like the grandfather of the apologetics movement. He's mentored a lot of guys. He's a brilliant guy. He's written, I believe, over 100 books. And the guy hates to read. He admitted it. But he was sharing at this particular conference, and afterwards I walked up to him because I had read months prior that he has like five or six kids, seven kids, and all of his kids are serving the Lord, except he had one daughter that went astray. And she ended up overdosing on heroin, and she died in a hotel room in Myrtle Beach. And as I talked to him about it, he said, Mike, it was a very, very painful time for me and my wife. And I said, Norm, during that time, did God speak to you and let you know that he was in control. He said, absolutely. He said, there were times where I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I would sing hymns to God. And he said, God would always give me a personal word of assurance that he would never leave me nor forsake me. And so God does give us those words of encouragement. He uses that if we're walking with him, which by the way, it's important to walk with God because it's during the storms of life that God ministers to us. And here is Paul's argument to the Philippians. If God gives you love, fellowship, and encouragement, and compassion during your time of persecution, return the favor to God and strive for unity. Because of what God has done for you, here's what I want you to do for God. I want you to work out your differences, and I want you to resolve conflict. You see, you know what motivates us to live the Christian life? You know what motivates us to resolve conflict in our marriage and with other people in the church is all the blessings of God in our life. You know, it's the favor of God that leads us to repentance, Romans 2 says. I remember a guy in my previous church, he was a very legalistic guy, very critical. He did some things that hurt me. And I remember I wanted to nurse a grudge. I wanted to be bitter against him. And I remember I was driving home one day and I was wrestling with this issue and I said, Lord, you know what? You have blessed me so many times, Lord. I blow it daily, and I've sinned in your sight all the time, and yet you have poured out forgiveness after forgiveness after forgiveness. And Lord, based on your forgiveness in my life, how can I withhold forgiveness from this particular individual? And you know what? That motivated me to make a decision to forgive him. Why? Because of God's blessing of forgiveness in my life. And so, if you're tempted not to want to resolve your conflict and say, you know what, that's their problem. 
I can't stand them anyway. I hate them. Or you don't want to forgive that family member that maybe physically abused you. Whatever it is, you know what should motivate you is the blessings of God. God ministers to you in your time of need. And you know the way you minister to God is when you say, Lord, I'm going to obey you and I'm going to forgive. And instead of holding a grudge, I'm going to minister to other people compassion, love, and fellowship and the like. And so the first motivation to resolve conflict is God's blessing and resource in our life. There's a second motivation that Paul gives here in Philippians chapter 2, and that is this. Remember the impact of conflict on others. You need to remember that conflict has an impact on other people. Notice, if you will, chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, notice what Paul says here in verse 2. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. You know what Paul is saying here? The Philippians and their conflict resolution, to some degree, would bring Paul joy. Now, if you know the Apostle Paul and you've read throughout his letters, Paul did not tie his joy to his circumstances. But you know what? There was a certain sense in which when Paul saw the church divided and conflicted, that grieved the Apostle Paul. And Paul says here, your conflict resolution is going to impact me. He says, if you want to make me happy, if you want to make me joyful, he says, resolve your conflict. And this is an important principle when it comes to resolving conflict. We need to remember that conflict and not dealing with it over a period of time, I'm not talking about isolated things. We all get in isolated scuffles. But when you have unresolved conflict that you're not willing to deal with, you know what that does? That impacts other people as well as you. It creates stress. You think about the impact in churches today on leadership alone. I was reading some stats on this of how conflict in churches today create a lot of stress in the life of leaders. Look at the stat, stats up on the screen. It says here that 20% to 25 of all churches face active conflict. 84% of pastors have experienced destructive church conflict. This one was alarming to me. 1,500 pastors leave each month due to burnout, moral failure, and look at this, contention in the church. 1,500 pastors walk away, and 68% report damaged or destroyed relationships. And so we see where conflict that goes unresolved in church, you know what it does? It creates stress in the middle of a church among the leadership. I remember years ago, we had a guy on our worship team. He was a very, very gifted guitarist. He could lead. He was very gifted. But he had a divisive spirit. And I remember he was helping with a small group, and he sent out an email to all the small group, and here's what he said in the email. Of course, he CC'd me on the email. He said, hey, come to small group tonight. We're going to look at the heresy of Tim LaHaye and the preacher of rapture. Well, first of all, you're free to disagree with that view. There are godly men who have different views, but it's not a heresy. And so I immediately confronted him on it and said, look, you're, you're being divisive here. Well, eventually, he didn't want to change his view. He was very divisive, and so he left the church. And then what he did was he took all the emails in our church, in our database, and he blitzed everybody in the church, and he said, I want everybody to know that Pastor Mike threw me out of the church. 
which was a total misrepresentation. And you know what that does? Now you have to put out fires. No one really believed him anyway because I had enough trust with the fellowship. But you see what it does? It creates stress and leadership. And listen, think about what unresolved conflict does in families today. Think about what it does with kids. I'll never forget when I was growing up, my mom and dad got in an argument. And you know, my parents, they're, they're Middle Eastern. And so when they argue, they shout. They're just very, very loud. Did you see the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? That was exactly my household. You know, you don't talk in a normal tone. You shout at one another, what do you want? That was just, it was like an Italian family. But I remember growing up, my mom and dad got in an argument. It was a bad argument. And I remember my mom wouldn't talk to my dad for days. And I remember it bothered me. And I remember going to my mom and I begged her to resolve the issue with my father. Now, my parents have been married 55 years. They've hung in there together. But I remember it impacted me, just that one conflict. And so we got to remember that conflict does have an impact on other people. And if you want joy in your life and you want to bring joy to Pastor John, to myself and the other leaders here, resolve your issues. Now, listen, you're going to have differences, as we're going to see in a minute, but you got to be willing to resolve them. So the first principle is remember the blessings and resources God has given you. Secondly, you need to what? You need to realize that God has caused us to resolve our conflict because our conflict has an impact on other people. There's a third principle that the Apostle Paul gives here, and that is this. You must keep your focus on a common purpose or goal. If you want to resolve conflict, you must keep your focus on a common purpose or goal. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, make my joy complete by being of the, circle that word, same mind. He goes, I want you guys to think alike. Maintaining the same love. There's that word same again. In other words, love people the same. Don't play favorites. Don't mistreat other people. He says, united in spirit. There's that word united. And then here it is, intent on one purpose. Notice Paul says here that if you're going to resolve conflict, he says you need to be united in your love, you need to be united in terms of your mindset, you need to be united in terms of your purposes and your goals. Now let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that we're all going to be alike, we're all going to think alike, we're all going to dress alike, we're all going to have the same preferences and tastes, because you and I know God wired us all differently. We all have different tastes, preferences, personalities, motivations, some of you may like the carpet color, some of you may not. That's not what Paul is dealing with. That's the superficial. We're allowed to have differences in those areas. What Paul is talking about here is something much deeper. He's talking about an overarching purpose. He's saying what you need to do is be intent on one purpose. And this is the key in marriage. This is the key in a local church. This is the key in politics. We have to set aside, watch this, our pettiness, our preferences, our differences, and we have to be willing to look at the overall purpose and goal. Yes, you may disagree with somebody. Yes, you may have a certain taste or preference, but you know what? In the end, you're willing to set aside maybe your taste or preference for the sake of the overall purpose and goal. 
That's why a lot of marriages don't work in the Christian church today. They say 50% of all marriages end in divorce. You want to know why? It's because couples cannot get beyond the pettiness in their marriage. You know, you don't do this, and you're structured, and I'm unstructured, and I don't like when you do this. Listen, every marriage has its idiosyncrasies. Every marriage, you're going to get irritated with things. And you know what? Laura and I are opposite. But we've been married almost 29 years. You know why? Because we've kept our eye on the bigger goal. And you know what the bigger goal is? We want to glorify God in our marriage and be a testimony, not only to the church, but also to the world. And if we didn't have that driving force, we may have been divorced in the beginning years of our marriage because the first two years, I mean, it was rough. And you see, the overall goal, think about this. Why do churches fuss and fight with one another? Let me tell you why. There are a lot of churches that split and divide over minutia. They don't like the carpet color. There are churches that divide over the ropes. I knew a church that divided over a chicken bone. They were having a potluck, and there was a, there was a division in the church over theology. Some were Arminian and some were Calvinist. Some believe that man's free choice reign, and some people believe that God chose and ordained everything. One guy stood up at the potluck, he held up a chicken bone, and he said, it was foreordained before the foundation of the world that I stand here with this chicken bone, and then the fight began to ensue. The church split. You show me a church that gets caught up in a lot of the minutiae, a lot of the petty stuff, and I'll show you a church that's not focused on the Great Commission. But a church that's focused on the Great Commission, a church that's outwardly focused and not inwardly focused on squabbles, that's a church that's going to accomplish much for God. Now, this is not to say that you can't have an opinion. This is not to say that you can't do, agree, you're not going to agree with everything or you're not going to disagree. You're going to have desires and preferences. But listen, don't major on the minors. That's what a lot of Christians do. They don't like the pastor, he did this, they don't like this going on, they don't like that. As we're going to see later, if you have an issue, yes, address those issues, but you know what? Focus on a common purpose and goal. Listen to what Philippians chapter 3 says, I love this passage. Paul is dealing with acrimony in the Corinthian church, they were dividing over leaders. Some were saying, I follow Paul, some were saying, I follow Paulus, some were saying, I follow Peter, and there was this division going on, and notice how Paul addresses that issue. He says in verse 5, what after all is Apollos? What is Paul? He says, guys, don't exalt us. We're only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord is assigned to each his task. And notice each one was given a task. I planted the seed, that is Paul. He established the gospel there in Corinth. Apollos watered it. He came in and did discipleship, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Get your eyes off the leader and get your eyes on God. And then notice verse 8. Look what he says to them. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. In other words, Paul is saying stop competing. Stop exalting one leader over another. We're not in competition with one another. We're on the same team. That's why we pray for a different local church every Sunday or one local church each month. The reason why is because we are on the same team with our brothers and sisters in Christ that name the name of Christ. We're not in competition with one another. We complement one another. And so many churches are territorial. 
We get into these disputes. Why? Because we forget the overall purpose. Think about today what's going on in politics. There is so much hatred. There is so much verbal mudslinging. Now watch this. Both parties cannot get beyond the pettiness and look at the common goal and purpose for this nation. You see, they're not interested in the benefit of America. If they were, they would have their differences, but they would resolve their differences and compromise in order to see something get done in our country. But you know what it is now? We want to stand and listen, I hate you, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to speak evil of you, and I'm not interested in the rest of this country. Now listen, I'm not making a pitch here for Joe Biden because I don't get political in the pulpit, but yesterday I read a quote from Joe Biden and I thought, wow, that was really good. Look what he said up on the screen. Our politics has become so mean, so petty, so negative, so partisan, so angry, and so unproductive. Instead of debating our opponents, we demonize them. Instead of questioning judgments, we question their motives. Instead of listening, we shout, end quote. He's right. Now, whether he practices it or not, that's something for you to decide. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to practice it. But listen, he hit the heart of it. That is the problem in our country. We're so petty. We're so negative. We disagree with you, but we're not interested in the overall goal or purpose. And so, if you want to resolve conflict, here is a motivation and a principle Look at the overarching goal and purpose. What is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose of your marriage? Get beyond the pettiness. Stop being a nitpicker. Stop having a critical spirit. You say, Mike, but I battle things. Listen, we all do. We all have negative thoughts. But you know what? You lay that aside. Now, if it's something major where you can't let it go, then you got to go to that person and you got to talk to them. I'm not saying you don't have differences or you don't address issues. But what I am saying is you learn to overlook a lot of things. Well, there's a fourth principle that Paul gives here in Philippians chapter 2 if we're going to resolve conflict, and that is, and this is where the rubber meets the road, we must die to self and put other people first. Listen, inevitably, when you have ongoing acrimony and conflict in a fellowship and a marriage, you will find, as I've done marriage counseling over the years, and I've seen it in my own marriage, usually there is selfishness and there is pride. That is what kills unity, not dying to self. And so Paul here is going to give us a classic passage we all know, we all battle with. Verse 3, do nothing, he's telling Philippians, from selfishness or empty conceit. In other words, don't be driven by yourself. Don't be driven by pride. Rather, verse 3, with humility of mind. You see, it starts in the mind. Your mind is your attitude. Listen carefully. It is an attitude that you have to cultivate. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. You're going to do that. Paul knows that. It's natural. He says, in addition to looking out for your own interests, he says, look out for the interests of others. And if you want a consummate example of someone who regarded others as more important than himself, 
He says, look at Jesus in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you know what he does from verses 5 to 11? He gives us that great Christological passage where Jesus left the penthouse, he came to the outhouse, and then God exalted him back to heaven. Why did Jesus do that? To take care of your sins and my sins, even though we were selfish? Jesus manifested the most unselfish act by coming to this earth and dying for you and I. And he says, look, what I'm asking you to do, putting other people first, is something that Christ did as a model, and we're to follow his example. And so let's be honest, guys. One of the hardest things to do, even as a Christian, that's why you got to be spirit-filled. you got to die to self, and you got to love the other person, and you got to set aside your agenda and put them first. Now, I'm not saying you're going to do that all the time. It's give and take. But if you're not willing to die to self, and you got pride, and you got ego, and you're arrogant, listen, you're going to have conflict, and you're not going to resolve it. You say, well, Mike, wait a minute. I've shown humility. I've shown love. I've said I'm sorry, and that person is totally arrogant and pompous. Well, guess what? As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In other words, God expects you to do your part. You say, well, what does this look like? What are some practical ways to put other people first to help resolve conflict? Let me give you some suggestions. Number one, listen to the other person. Listen to the other person. There's a difference between hearing and listening. And you know what? I'm not a good listener. I struggle with that. Ask my wife. If it doesn't interest me, my attention span is about the length of a gnat. But you know what? A lot of times we don't want to listen to people. We hear them and then we want to get our argument out. That's so true in marriage, right? Listen to people. It authenticates them. Secondly, Admit when you are wrong. You see, that's putting other people first in the midst of conflict. If you are wrong, admit it and say you are sorry. And you know what? Sometimes that's just hard to do. There are times where I've had to go to my wife and say, you know what? You were right and I was wrong. And that's difficult. But you know what? It gets easier the longer you're married. But you know what? Admit you're wrong. Stop being arrogant. Stop being proud and say you're always right. How about this one? Try to say things from their perspective. How about this one? Watch your words. Man, this is a tough one, is it not? Especially if you're a verbal person and you tend to attack with your words. If you're an aggressive personality, maybe you're married to someone who's more of a quiet-natured person. You have to watch your words. You know why? Because words can incite anger and conflict. In fact, I read something humorous the other day. One guy said this, quote, one year I decided to buy my mother-in-law a cemetery plot for Christmas. The next year, I didn't buy her a gift, he said. When she asked me why, I replied, well, you still haven't used the gift that I bought you from last year, so why should I buy you another one? You know, your words can set the other person off. All I have to do is say one thing, and I know how to get under my wife's skin. You say words here at Calvary Chapel, you start gossiping and slandering and planting seeds of discord. Listen, we know. How about this one? Watch your reactions. Watch your body language. Are you mad at me? No. Are you sure? Yeah, everything's fine. I'm sending mixed signals, am I not? Be willing to defer to the other person. That's putting other people first. Be teachable. Be open to correction. 
You know, if you're wrong and somebody points it out, now you may agree to disagree in the end, but at least be open to correction. Look for win-win solutions. Do you try to find a point of compromise as long as you're not compromising core biblical truths? Avoid passive-aggressive behavior. Haven't we all done that in relationships before? You're really mad at the person, and what happens is you become passive-aggressive. Some of you who are married know this. This happens in the church. Are you mad at me? No, I'm not mad at you. Then why haven't you talked to me for two days? Some of you wives, you get mad at your husband, and you know what you do? You say, I'm not going to have sex with him for the next month. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You use it as a weapon. What is the weapon you're using? Some husbands, they give their wives the silent treatment. We all are guilty in areas that we have to be careful. And you know what? These areas, we're not putting the other person before ourselves. Overlook, listen carefully, minor offenses. Stop wearing your feelings on your sleeve. If you get offended all the time, well, you said this, and Pastor John said that, and Pastor Mike did this, and somebody overlooked my toothpicks at the 4th of July picnic. They didn't acknowledge my toothpicks. You'd be surprised at how many Christians will find little things and minor offenses. You know what it says in the Bible? It is to the glory of a man to overlook offenses. And listen, if you're oversensitive, you're always going to have conflict with other people. So if you want to put other people first, overlook minor offenses. Forgive them when they wrong you. Stop holding a grudge. Serve the other person. And then agree to disagree charitably. There are times where you may not agree. You know the Apostle Paul and Barnabas had a falling out? Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on another missionary journey. John Mark had bailed on the first missionary journey. And you know, Barnabas was the son of encouragement. Paul was a driven type A personality. And so when they were going to go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas said, hey, Paul, uh, I got to ask you something. Yeah, what is it, Barnabas? Uh, you, know, you know my cousin Mark here. Um, he kind of blew it. And I was just wondering if we could take him on the missionary journey. Uh, Barnabas, come here. No. He bailed on us the last time. And you know we're going through the mountains. It's going to be difficult. I don't want to take him. Well, Paul, you're being, you're being a jerk, man. Come on. How about the fruit of the Spirit that you're supposed to manifest? No. We're not taking him. And you know what happened? It says in the Greek in Acts 15, there was a bitter. It uses a strong word in the Greek. They had a parting. Two missionary teams were formed. Now, at the end of Paul's life, when he wrote 2 Timothy, he said to Timothy, bring Mark, for he is useful to me in my ministry. Now, either Paul softened and saw his pride, or Mark matured. We really don't know. But you see, you got to be willing to forgive, look for win-win, and you got to be willing to work with other people. And sometimes, listen, you may agree to disagree. Paul and Barnabas agreed to disagree, and God used it. Well, there's a couple more principles. I'm just going to touch on these because John is going to hit these, but I think it's the overall context of chapter 2. And here is the fifth principle. I just want to read it. We must prioritize conflict resolution for our own spiritual growth. Now, if you look at verse 12, you would think there's a new subject here, and in a sense, there's really not, because notice verse 12, so then. He's continuing the thought that he brought up in verse 1. He's still on the subject of conflict. He's still on the subject of unity. He says, so then, my beloved. 
speaking of the church, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, here it is, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, do all things, verse 14, without grumbling or disputing. Now, Paul doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. He's talking about growth, sanctification, becoming like Jesus. And you know how the Philippians needed to work out their salvation? By resolving conflict. He's saying if you're going to resolve your conflict, that's part of working out your salvation. Make it a priority. Prioritize your spiritual growth when it comes to conflict resolution. Now, here's the issue, people. Are you listening? Say amen. If you have no interest in ever resolving conflict, you will not grow in your walk with God. You can't. You've got to prioritize it. To God, it is an important issue. Because how can I walk with God if I'm at odds with other people? Now, we may agree to disagree and there may be a parting of ways. That's fine. But at least you talked about it and you resolved your differences to a certain degree. God is not saying you're going to get along with everybody. And let's be honest, there are some people you just don't like, you struggle with, but you choose not to have a negative attitude. And then he gives one final principle, like I said, John's going to be covering this more in detail as he goes into chapter two, and that is this, seek out a third party if necessary to help you resolve your conflict. This one's important, chapter four, he says, I plead with Yodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. They were struggling, probably some type of personality conflict. And then he asks a third person in verse 3 to help them. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. He asked this individual, we don't know who he is, he says, look, I want you to help these two women that are not getting along, they can't resolve their differences, I want you to go in and mediate between them. And you know, that's an important principle. Sometimes you got to go to a marriage counselor. Sometimes you got to go to the leaders of the church and say, hey, help us arbitrate this difference. See, look for a third party sometimes when you're in the midst of struggle. So what did we learn this morning? God wants us to resolve our conflicts. And here's the question I want to ask you as we close. Do you have somebody that you're in conflict right now with? Do you have a spirit of bitterness? Do you have a root, a grudge that you're holding, somebody that you need to forgive? Now, if you can forgive that person and move on, you don't necessarily need to go to them. But if you have something against somebody and you can't let it go, it gets in your craw, and you can't let it go, the Bible says go to that person and try to resolve it without gossiping to other people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for reminding us of the need for conflict resolution. It's not always easy. It takes work. But Lord, I thank you as we were reminded in verse 1 of all the blessings that you've given us. You've given us love. You've given us compassion. You've given us mercy. You've given us encouragement. You've given us material blessing. God, I pray based on your blessing that you would help us, Lord God, be motivated to work out our differences with others. Father, I pray that we would preserve the unity of the Spirit here at Calvary Chapel. We already have it in your Son, Jesus Christ. We already are one with every Christian. But God, you call us to preserve that unity. And Father, help us to 
put other people as more important than ourselves. God, forgive us when we don't. And Lord, I ask you to forgive the American church because so many churches in America are bogged down with conflict that is unresolved and it has quenched the spirit. It has hindered our witness because we can't get along with one another. Forgive us for that, Lord. And I pray here that we would keep short accounts and that we would deal with conflict. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.